open it. There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and now we're going to study chapter 10 of the book of Matthew. We left off right around verse 16, but we're going to just do a little quick review in case there's people here that haven't been here for a few weeks. Uh, Matthew is one of the four gospels. He was one of the 12 apostles. He's an eyewitness. He's writing a gospel to prove, especially to the Jews, but to everyone, that Jesus Christ is God's son. He is the Messiah and the rightful king of Israel. He's proven it so many ways with the genealogy, showing that he's in the line of David, also showing that he's the son of God uh, with the virgin birth. We've seen uh, John the Baptist um, testify that he is, Jesus is indeed the son of God uh, and the one that we are to follow and that he, John the Baptist, must increase and must decrease, sorry, and Jesus must increase. Then we've seen Jesus tempted by the devil himself, something I'm confident none of us have gone through. We maybe have been tempted by the world, the flesh, and demons, but the fact that a, the devil himself would tempt any one of us, I doubt it, but you never know. In any case, he came through that temptation perfectly in the wilderness. Now, then we've seen three chapters of incredible wisdom, the Sermon on the Mount, and then two chapters, Matthew groups together a bunch of miracles of a variety of sorts to show us that Jesus has the power the Messiah is supposed to have. Starting in chapter um, 10, he's sending out the 12 apostles on a little mini missionary um, trip to spread the gospel. And what we've seen in this chapter is that he is giving them some surprising instructions. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, if you will. And one of the things he wants them to do is don't even pack a bag. Don't take an extra um, change of clothes. Count on people to give you hospitality. Don't bring any money. Um, he introduces the 12 apostles in the early, chapter, early verses of chapter 10. Um, and then uh, here are the instructions starting in verse 5. Don't go among the Gentiles. That comes later, by the way. First, they're sent to Israel um, because he's the Jewish Messiah. Don't go into the towns of the Samaritans. Eventually they will, and Jesus did too. Go to the lost sheep of Israel, verse 6. Preach this message, verse 7. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then they're shocked to hear, verse 8, heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse lep lepers, and drive out demons. He's going to give them that power. It's an amazing thing, and scholars agonize over this because the Holy Spirit doesn't get given till much later. And yet he can anoint them with this ability to do these miracles for the purpose of verifying, um, giving credibility to the message that they're saying this Jesus guy is the Messiah. Verse 9, don't take any gold or silver or copper in your belts, no extra bag, no tunic, that's an outer garment, no, no extra sandals or even a staff. The worth, workers worthy of his keep, verse 10, meaning people will donate to you as they see fit, that's fine, don't make it excessive. Um, stay at somebody's house, uh, we talked about that last week, verses 11 and uh, 12. If the home's deserving, let your peace rest on it, meaning 
they wish the shalom, the peace of God to be on that household. If they don't like the message or kick you out, the, mess, the blessing comes back to you, not on that household, basically. Um, then in verse 15, he says, I tell you the truth, for those who don't accept the message, that's verse 14, not welcome you, listen to your words, it'll be worse, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them on the day of judgment. It's an astounding thing. What he's saying is, if, you, if they don't accept me, I am the central figure when it comes to judgment. And Sodom and Gomorrah, as evil as a place as that was in terms of lust and absolute constant sin, he's saying the worst sin is to refuse the Messiah. That's a greater sin, because that's the only antidote to the problem of, of sin and, and uh, guilt. Okay, so at the end of that, by the way, the Bible does teach Hebrews and elsewhere degrees of punishment, and this verse here, degrees of punishment in hell, degrees of reward in heaven. Hell's not the same for everybody. For some, it'll be worse. He's telling them more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be bad, but it'll be worse for the people that say no to the Messiah. Verse 16, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Good one. Verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Little animal lesson here, a bunch of animals, right? What's going on here? He's going to start to warn them. And let me give you the overview first. What, what follows here for a while is going to appear as bad news. Danger, persecution, hatred from a variety of places. In fact, I'll show you that the three building blocks of society or institutions of society, the family, human government, and the church or religion are all going to be against them to some degree or another. So it's going to sound like a bunch of bad news. It ends with great news, this chapter. Just wanted to make you aware of that so you don't start to get bummed out too early. So First of all, he says that he's sending them out. That word is their apostolos, their apostles, ones who are sent directly by God. In a minor sense, lowercase a, we are all apostles sent by God to witness to those around us. Some people get sent to faraway lands. They're going to stay in Galilee and all the little towns. And surely, we said last week, they probably divided it up. Okay, Thomas, you and Andrew go north. You guys go east. We'll go west, you know, kind of thing. And they're all going to witness. But he's saying, I'm sending you out like sheep, common term for believers, among wolves. That's a no contest kind of a battle, isn't it? Wolves are cunning. They are vicious. Sheep are dumb. And they're isn't that interesting? He calls us sheep. I wonder why. Sheep are dumb and they're, they're defenseless. They're prone to wander. So he's saying, be on your guard. And he's not wrong, is he? Um, so there's going to be persecution. There's going to be danger. Um, so be on your guard. But then there's this next phrase. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes. Anybody here love snakes? There's always one or two in the crowd. No, there's no one here that loves snakes. Okay. Ladies, you don't love snakes? Just kidding. Um, snakes are almost universally disliked, right? Something about them, not just because of the Garden of Eden. They're just kind of slithery uh, creatures. But in any case, he's saying, be shrewd. 
um, a snake knows when to move on. And so it might surprise you to learn that he's going to say, there comes a time when they're not accepting your message and you can tell danger's brewing, go on to the next town. Don't invite danger, don't invite controversy for, for its own sake. Do the work of an evangelist, but there's a time to be shrewd and move on. So don't be cunning like a snake, but be prudent, careful, sensible, use sound judgment. That's um, been said, innocence without prudence or wisdom is naivete. You just accept anybody and go into dark alleys and end up getting beaten up or murdered or worse, right? In any case, the other animal here is innocent as doves. So the snake evil connotation is out now. He wants him to be innocent, pure, but smart, shrewd, realize this is not the time or the place for this message. What would tie into the verses in the Sermon on the Mount about um, casting your pearls before swine. Do you remember that? There comes a time when you don't cast pearls before swine because they're liable to trample the, the pearls, which are valuable, the gospel, and hurt you or trample you. So verse, uh, let's see, back to 16. Shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. Verse 17, watch out, be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. What's that? That's religious persecution. A local council would be part of a Jewish community, um, and the synagogue would be where the Jews meet in local areas apart from the big temple in Jerusalem. So um, in a general sense, I'm sending you out among a bunch of wolves. Now we're going to get specific. The first area of persecution they can expect is religious persecution from the Jews. Not every Jew, but handed over, which has the idea of being held, arrested, and handed over to be flogged, whipped, beaten, uh, persecuted, in some way punished. Why? What have they done? They've done nothing illegal, but they are preaching the gospel, which is so offensive to the Jewish people. When we're done with these groups, I want to circle back and ask the question, why is Christianity so offensive? Because it is. You, not to you, not to me. You've grown to love Jesus and the word and the doctrines and right salvation by grace and no more blood sacrifices. But it is, mark my words, the most offensive religion on earth. You say, no, that's Islam. Not to the rest of the world. They hate Christianity. Um, you'll be handed over to the local councils to be flogged, that's whipped, beaten, in the synagogues. Why? Because they will see, the Jews, Christianity as an affront to their Judaism, where they don't realize it actually completes Judaism. All the pictures and the types and shadows of the lamb for the sacrifice, all of it is met in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ but they're going to hate it that much. He wants to warn them, I'm sending you on a really, really, really tough mission. If you've ever done sales work, worked in sales, there's such a thing as people setting up, your boss sets up appointments. I set up an appointment for you to sell these air conditioners. This guy's interested. Here's his name and phone number and address. Go see him or call him. Great. That's a lead. Then there's what's called cold calling 
where you're just knocking on a door. Hi, would you be interested in buying a, and the door's already slammed, right? Before you even go, air conditioner. Cold calling is tough. It's tougher when you come with the gospel. We'll get to why in a second. So the first religious persecution, uh, first persecution is religious, um, the Jews. Verse 18, on my account or because of me, Jesus is saying, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the gospel. Second type is civil government persecution. And there have been many governments over the course of, the, of human history, especially in the last 2,000 years, that have persecuted Christians and arrested Christians. There are countries in which if you have a Bible, you're already in trouble. Um, so religious persecution, now government persecution. Keep in mind, in this section, He's given them the instructions I told you about earlier. Don't bring a bag. Don't bring any extra money, extra sandals, travel light. Starting in verse 16, I should have mentioned this earlier. These instructions are much broader. What do you mean? A lot of this stuff does not happen to them on this first two to four week, we'll call it, little mini missionary journey. But in the future, it will. And in the book of Acts, you see all this stuff. And you have, if you look through all of history to now, see all this stuff happening. There's no evidence that the governments persecuted these guys on a two to four week little thing through Galilee. None of them got flogged or whipped or anything that we know of. But he's warning them about future persecution. You're going to sell a product. Here's part of the irony. That is the thing people need the most ultimately, salvation. And it's the antidote for the problem of mankind's heart, and yet people will hate you for it. It's kind of an odd uh, thing, isn't it? So uh, let's see. By the way, they're to be like doves because the temptation, when they're persecuted, the temptation to retaliate will be there. So they have to be shrewd as snakes, but as far as retaliation, no, be like doves. Go ahead, Ken, just one sentence, if you will, because I got to repeat your question. Sorry, say again. Um, the dove. Gosh, gentleness dove. I don't think so at this point, but he's going to mention the spirit, even though it hasn't been given yet. That's how we know it's future. Um, but it might be. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. He's asking, is that is the dove a, men, a, a reference to the Holy Spirit? In Acts 20, verse 29, you don't need to turn there, Paul is warning the churches, and he tells them, after I leave, I'm worried because savage wolves, there's that word again, are coming in, and there he says they're going to come from your own number, meaning from within the church, there'll be those that will be there as wolves, dressed as sheep in sheep's clothing kind of thing. So, um, it's a proof of his omniscience, all-knowing character, that he's able to predict, and he knows these things, isn't it? Um, but because of Jesus, they'll be brought before governors and kings. That's the leaders of state. It's an amazing thing that these uneducated unedu guys from Galilee, 11 of the 12, not Judas, are going to be affecting governments, where they're going to take notice and they're going to get to witness to, as a testimony, that's what it means, kings, governors, heads of state. 
And it's happened through the centuries, hasn't it? Christianity has attracted a lot of attention. Please notice in verse 18, the word on my account or because of me. Why are you pointing that out, Joe? Just for this reason. If they, as Christian missionaries, get arrested for being drunk in public or stealing or any other crime, that's on them. They're supposed to be pure and holy. The reason he's covering here is if you get arrested for preaching about me, then the following. But they are not to be um, doing anything illegal or offensive. We said last week that gospel is offensive enough to people. We'll cover that more uh, shortly. Why is the gospel so offensive? Brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. The thing about this is, and those are some of the wolves, but the thing about this is, you never know which wolf is going to turn into a lamb, a sheep, right? That God is going to convert. I'll give you an example of a wolf that was turned into a sheep, the apostle Paul. He was a wolf going around like a bounty hunter, arrest, getting Christians arrested, getting Christians killed, putting Christians in prison, thinking he was doing service to God, which by the way, John 16 predicts the day is coming, Jesus says, when people will think they're offering service to God by persecuting you, as if that's what God would want. That's what Paul thought. God changed him from a wolf into a sheep. And even a shepherd in a sense, right? Okay. Verse 18. Did we cover 17, 18? Yes, we did. Okay. Um, on account, my account brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Notice the last phrase. And to the Gentiles. Wait, time out. He just said, don't go to the Gentiles. This is another evidence. This is yet future. These instructions will apply later because in Matthew 28, you know what he's going to say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. All nations everywhere spread the gospel. So um, that's another reason we know this section is yet future. Uh, preaching to the Gentiles. It's amazing to me. I think, I'm sure you know this. Throughout the centuries, most Christians are Gentiles, not Jews. You would think, knowing what they know about the Old Testament, about the Messiah, the sacrifice, that it would all, bing, the lights would go on. Why doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, they, the Jews, have been blinded for a time. In some case, as a punishment for their not wanting him 2,000 years ago. But they will come to faith in Christ. We have Jewish people in this room right now who are believers. And praise God for that. And you never know. I was just talking to somebody before we started the Bible study about what's going on in Israel. And we all need to be praying about that. I pray that this great persecution and trial, travesty that's going on, tragedy, would wake some of them up spiritually to come to Jesus Christ somehow. I don't know how that would work, but that's my prayer. Okay, verse 19, but when they arrest you, did you hear that? These guys are listening. What did he say? Did he say if? When, right? It's pretty amazing. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, 
but the spirit of your father, that's the Holy Spirit, speaking through you. So he's telling them there's some good news amongst all this um, wolves and persecution and flogging and governments being against you and your own countrymen, the Jews being against you. The good news is if you are called to testify because you've been arrested for the gospel, that God will supernaturally through his Holy Spirit, which hasn't been given yet, that's why we know it's future, give you the words to say. In the book of Acts, you see this with um, Peter when he gives a sermon in Acts 2. You really see it with Stephen uh, as he's about to be stoned. Um, Pretty amazing. Uh, Governors and kings and what have you will be astounded by their wisdom, which comes out of their mouths, but it's God speaking through them. There have been some lazy preachers who have read this, and this is their excuse for not preparing for teaching a sermon or a Bible study. I just want the Spirit to speak through me. I'm not going to do any preparation. I'm going golfing, and then I'm going to you know, go swimming, and I'll just wing it, and God will speak through me. He might, but we are to show ourselves approved, studying the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We ought to, those who teach, prepare as much as we can. Does the Spirit take the reins and preach despite me often? Hope so. I think so. Um, I gave a talk once to about 400 teenagers in San Jose for Young Life. All the groups of Young Life. Anybody go to Young Life here besides me? Um, Or involved? Yeah, it was a great organization. Um, To play a little music and speak to them. So I drove there with a friend from Santa Cruz over to San Jose. And he said to me on the way, uh, do you know what you're going to say? And I said, I have an idea. I have notes and stuff, and I prepared something. And he said from the passenger seat as I'm driving Highway 17 over the hills, big mistake. What? Don't prepare anything. Just let the spirit. Good example. The context here is if you're arrested, which I wasn't, thank God, and they call you to give a testimony, that's when the Holy Spirit will speak through these uneducated Galilean guys, mostly fishermen. So that's the, uh, the backstory there. Um, they hear Gentiles here and they, they're thinking, boy, this is a much bigger thing than I thought. They hear kings and governors and they think, wow, it's not just going to be this little band. It's going to be worldwide. And it is. Christianity is the biggest religion on planet earth. Okay. Why, we asked the question earlier, Why is the gospel so offensive? Okay, number one, Jesus' claims, they're huge. They're huge. He claims that every human being will be judged on the basis of one thing. What did you do with Jesus? He's saying, I am going to be the judge of the human race. Christianity is viewed by the world as being extremely narrow one way. It is, isn't there? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No man comes to the to God, the Father, except through me. Peter, in the book of Acts, um, there's only one name given among, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's narrow, 
But as I'm fond of saying, so is all truth is narrow. Six plus three is nine. If you think it's 14, good for you, that's wrong. Or you think it's five, six plus three is nine. There's one wrong answer, there's billions of wrong answers, right? Where you are on planet earth, that where you are is where you are. You can think you're in Tokyo or in you know, London, you're where you are. Oh, cursed for you folks, some of the rest of you on Zoom, parts unknown. But the, the point is, truth is by nature narrow. Another reason Christianity is offensive. Christianity starts with bad news. You, unsaved sister, woman or man, are on your way to hell and you deserve it. Did you have to start that way? I used to deserve it too. In fact, I still do, but God has, Christ has forgiven my sins. It starts with having to make people admit you have no way to save yourself. Absolutely no hope before God. The damage is done. You can't undo all those sins. Someone has to pay. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, meaning you'll pay when you die. Or Jesus's blood paid on the cross. No other way. Every other religion is D-O. Do this. The eightfold path of Buddhism. Do this. The five pillars of Islam. Do this. Even to some extent for Jews, the Ten Commandments. All those commandments in the Jewish Bible are there to show people they can't keep God's law. That's why they need a sacrifice. They need a savior. So Christianity is very narrow. The, the um, claims of Jesus are grandiose. If they're not true, he's the biggest egomaniac that ever lived. But if they are true, he's God in human flesh. And those of you who know the word know that he proved it over and over with the miracles, with the control over nature, with the rising from the dead, with his birth, everything about him proved it, the wisdom that he had. So it's narrow. Christianity preaches hell. Now there's other religions that, religions that have similar type things, but we want to feel like we can earn it. We want to feel like we can do it Frank Sinatra way, my way, right? Burger King, have it your way. Religion's not that way. God has made a way. It's offensive to a lot of people that it's the only way. Uh, the exclusive claims, we already talked about that. It's convicting regarding sin. It's a little insulting. You're saying, I can't do it? You're saying, I'm a bad person? We're all bad people. Um, Satan's kids hate the gospel. Who? Satan's kids. Who's that? All unbelievers. John 8 talks about it. You are of your father, the devil. Unsaved people, they may not look like it. You were at one time on that team. You're not anymore. But Satan's kids naturally hate it because of who their father is. Uh, let's see. Verse 19, the Holy Spirit, don't worry about what to say. God's going to speak through you. Translation, you're going to feel like you're going through this persecution on your own. It's all on your shoulders. It's all about me. What am I going to do? He's saying here, God will be 
with you. He hasn't explained the Holy Spirit yet. That's John 14, 15, and 16. But there we learn he will be in you. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, the most amazing thing on planet earth ever happened. God himself came to live inside of you in the form of the Holy Spirit. So that now, not only is that a louder conscience for when things are wrong, and it is, but it's also the ability to illumine the scriptures so that we understand them, the ability to resist sin, the ability to obey, and the protection against Satan that he can never enter you because the Holy Spirit's already there. He will speak through you at times. Some of you have experienced this, I'm sure, where you're witnessing to somebody and you're thinking, I don't even know what to say, and words come out of your mouth, and you're almost like a spectator going, oh, that was good. Wasn't me, but that was good. Uh, it's an amazing thing. That's what he's promising, in spite of all this persecution, that it's worth it. And the Holy Spirit, God himself, will be in you and with you and will even speak through you. Verse 21. More bad news. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. What he means by that is because of the gospel, not just there'll be random killings, there'll be such hatred of the gospel that the third institution, remember, God instituted human government, he instituted synagogues and religion he in the form of judaism and christianity and he instituted as the building block of society human families hillary is wrong it doesn't take a village to raise a child it takes a mommy and a daddy to raise a child and that is the basic building block of society um when you see a society like America, where families are breaking apart, where there's friction between siblings, where there's friction between kids and their parents, or vice versa, you see a society that is crumbling. How soon? I don't know. Brother will betray brother, here's the shocker, to death. To me, this is a picture of a and there's been stories I've heard many times of Muslim families, for example, where brother, uh, whatever his name, Abdul, becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his brother tells on him, and they persecute him, they kick him out of the family. Some Muslim families, if you're one of the kids, and uh, Chris here becomes a Christian, and he's a Muslim, part of the Muslim family, some Muslim families not only will kick Chris out of the house, don't ever come again, but they will hold a funeral for him, even though he's not dead. In extreme cases, they'll kill him. So, more bad news. Families might be, uh, you might have friction against you because you're a believer, whether it's your parents or your children. Um, have them put to death. There's death twice in that uh, verse 21. Re children rebelling against their parents. Those are what's called spiritual battles. There are parents saying, we raised our kids in the church. Why is there this friction? What, what's going on? It's a spiritual battle. All you can do is pray. Um, 
And so he's going to give some practical advice about this and some shocking other stuff coming up shortly. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, that was a good one. Those of you on Zoom, are you awake? Okay, beautiful. Forgot to ask earlier. Brother will betray brother families against one another because of the gospel. And listen, families have tremendous influence on their children, parents especially. If my father had said, leave this Christianity behind, my mother, who I looked up to and loved and admired, and we had just an unbelievable family. If they had said, leave this Christian thing behind, I would have really thought, boy, he's so wise. It might have influenced me to back off on it a little. He's about to talk about that and say, that's the worst thing you can do because you're choosing between me, meaning Jesus, and your family, and your family opinion is more important to you. In each of these cases, religious persecution, political persecution, family, what they're looking for is just get rid of that Christianity thing and we'll be nice again and we'll let you go. We won't whip you. The temptation is to wimp out. He's saying, don't do it. Those who are truly saved will not do it because the Holy Spirit's in there going, no, you know what you believe, Joe. You know what you believe, Michael. You can't do it. You must keep on keeping on. Verse 22, is there more bad news, Joe? As a matter of fact, there is. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, this is what's called hyperbole or exaggeration for effect. He doesn't mean by everyone because there's no one in the world everyone hates, right? I'm sure Saddam Hussein's kids or his mom, if she was alive, thought he was an okay guy, right? Osama bin Laden's kids. But the point is, the persecution will come from political, from religious, and from family directions, and from every, every other conceivable direction we haven't even thought about yet. He's saying this Christianity is the cure for man's ills, and yet they're going to hate you. My brother is a psychologist, has a master's degree in psychology. He's told me that there are three main um, motives for everything we do. Some people are dominated by one of these three more than the other two, some by two of the three, some by a little of each one. I'll give them to you really quickly. One of these, you're going to see where it ties in. One motive some people have is achievement. I just want to get things. You see that? I built that. Or I painted that painting. Or I sewed these clothes myself. Or I made that dinner. Or pat myself on the back. I achieved. I got a master's degree. Or whatever. Achievement. One of the motives for behavior. Number two, power. I want to control you. That's why I'm always giving advice. You should, Ken, you ought to do this and this and this. And the power motive, okay? The third one, though, is affiliation. I want people to like me. I'm basically a nice guy. So the affiliation person that's motivated by that can be affected here if the boss and the government and the religion <clears throat> and my sister and my mother are all saying, would you get off the Jesus freak thing, Joe? 
I want affiliation. I'm kind of a golden retriever. I just want to please everybody. I'm more likely to say, well, okay, maybe I'm overdoing it. I'll put the Bible in the drawer. No can do. Because, listen, the ultimate power is God's, not mine. The ultimate affiliation is with him. If I have affiliation with him, everything else will fall into place. And you know what? He will affiliate you with other believers who the Bible calls fellow Christians, what? Christian sisters and brothers, right? In some cases, mothers, right? Older women that have counseled you and what have you. Doesn't say fathers that much because God's our father. Thought I would throw that in. Affiliation, achievement, power. The ultimate achievement is coming to faith in Christ and then sharing your faith with others. These guys are going to have to learn to reorder their priorities because if they're into the affiliation thing and being popular, that's out the window. You're going to be hated. You like to be popular? Get over it. You're going to be hated. But this mission is so important. It's all worth it. You'll be affiliated with him. You'll have the power from above, which is his, to his glory. And you'll achieve more of eternal consequence than anyone else that's an unbeliever could ever do. The richest man that ever lived will not um, achieve what an average Christian can leading one or two people in their lifetime to Jesus Christ. Why do you say that? Because that's an eternal consequence. What if the billionaire gives billions to charity? That's great. All those people are going to die and be judged. Christianity has eternal consequences. Shall we keep rolling? Yes, we talked about that. Um, So I warned you, didn't I? Lots of bad news. You'll be hated. Oh, I like to be liked. Sorry, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. Second half of the verse 22. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Okay, now there's a right way and a wrong way to read that. I don't want you to misunderstand this. It sounds at first reading like the way you get saved is you earn it by standing firm to the end. And that's not what it means. Standing firm to the end or persevering to the end is the result of and the evidence of saving faith. What do you mean? It's not how you earn it. It's an evidence you have it. Because in 1 John chapter 2, he talks about people that used to be in the church. They sure seemed like Christians, and they no longer believed. They went out from us. And he says in 1 John 2, 19 and 20, they went out to show that they were never really of us. In other words, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. There are all kinds of verses. I don't want to beat this dead horse, but because people find this offensive, even Christians. But there is a doctrine called... um, the eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. What is the doctrine? I believe, and I believe it, by the way, that the Bible teaches that if you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Might you slip here and there? Yes. But true Christians persevere to the end. And those that don't were never saved. Jesus says in John 10 that believers are held in his hand and in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out of either hand. I'm giving you my quick 
paraphrase of that scripture. No one to snatch you, a believer, out of Jesus and the Father's hand, you know what you'd have to be? Stronger than Jesus and God. Impossible. So could Satan do it? No. Then I always ask people this. Could, if I'm held in, in uh, God's hand and Christ's hand, could Jeff and Chris working together? No, they're not stronger than God. Okay, here it comes. You ready? Could I do it? Could I snatch me with my behavior out of God's hand? No, I'm not stronger than God. Once you're truly saved, you're his kid. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me, listen, John 6, has eternal life, present tense. What's eternal life? It means you live forever. If you have eternal life and then you lose it, did you have it before you lost it? No, because it's eternal. Do you see what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, I won't beat the dead horse. Um, let's see. Um, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 for a second. Uh, because I forgot to mention this. Second, and then we'll take our break and eat those snacks back there. 2 Timothy, don't start eating yet. Chapter 4. It's in that section where all the books start with T, before Titus and after Thessalonians times 2. First, 2 Timothy 4, 16 to 18. Remember we said, Jesus said that the Lord would speak through you in the form of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? Listen to this. 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first, this is Paul, at my first defense, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Do you see the love there and the forgiveness? Here it comes, verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. God is with those especially who are persecuted for the gospel's sake in a special way. He's with you every day as he is with me. But in a special way, if persecution comes to America, and it could, right now it's just a little ridicule here and there, and you watch certain TV shows, and who's the hypocrite? The Christian, the minister, movies, right? Could get way worse. On that sad note, let's take our two-minute break and go eat some snacks. Make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know in this room. Those of you on Zoom, hang with me. Two minutes, we'll be right back. Don't go away. All right, welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. Let me pull my chair in. We're getting these instructions, and there's been some good news, but there's been quite a bit of disconcerting, somewhat bad news. But Jesus wants them to know what's ahead for them. Keep in mind, he is our Lord. He is our shepherd. He went through all these things, didn't he? In John 7, his brothers are kind of making fun of him and don't believe in him. In the Gospel of Mark, his brothers uh, and his family, including his mother, come to get him because they think he's out of his mind family. He gets religious persecution, definitely, from the Pharisees. He gets political persecution or civil government persecution from the Romans, doesn't he? And Herod, who he sees. So all these things um, he endures. 
Speaking of enduring to the end, Jesus did for you, right? He could have wimped out at any point. Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He had to die for the sins of the world. Imagine this one. Imagine being on the cross, being God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, with all power, and you hear somebody say, and they did, isn't this interesting? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Boy, human nature, I would say, you want to see me save myself? And I'd come down off the cross and God would go, nope, wrong. He endured to the end for you. That's an impetus. That's a motivation for me to endure to the end for him. May God grant us that uh, steadfast faith. Okay, let's keep rolling. Now you've had something to eat. You're really going to get sleepy. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. By the way, verses 16 and following, I said, our future. The question is, when does this stuff happen? Okay, there's going to be a time marker coming in this passage, by the way. But some say this is um, the disciples encountered this in their lives. Some of them did. Eleven of the twelve apostles died martyrs' deaths. That means they were killed because they believe in Jesus. All they would have had to do is say, okay, okay, we made it up. I renounce Jesus, let me go. And they would have let him go. And they all said, I know what I saw. I know what I believe. Do what you want to do to me, right? Eleven of the twelve. So in a sense, it happened in the book of Acts and immediately following when Jesus rises and goes to heaven. There's a sense in which... We're going to see in a second, 70 AD is a key year because then Christ comes in judgment. I'll get to that in a second. Some of this stuff happens in a bigger way during the tribulation at the end of the age, if you will, that the uh, day of the Lord, if you will. Part of the reason we say that is because he who stands firm to the end will be saved is in Matthew 24, which is talking about the great tribulation. So there's a sense where for all of human, Christian history, this stuff will go on. Here's another question just to ponder. Not going to make you feel too guilty, hopefully. Why aren't Christians persecuted in America? I mean, they are a little, like we said, they ridicule stuff and but we're really not very persecuted. Praise God. Some would answer that and say, well, America was formed by mostly Christians who signed the Declaration of Independence, who mostly signed the Constitution and wrote the Constitution. And there's all kinds of godly stuff said by Washington and Lincoln and all these other people. Um, but we are in a nation where the Christ numbers of Christians, I don't know if you know this, are declining. Church attendance is declining. Church attendance took a big hit with COVID. You probably know that. Don't get me started on that. Let me get my mask on. Okay, so, but is the reason, I'm just postulating that we as American Christians are not persecuted because we've learned to keep our mouths shut in the public arena, right? To some extent, 
Boy, you post something about Jesus at Christmas time or Easter, you might get a few people ridiculing you, right? Unfriending, oh, he's a Christian. Oh, well. In any case, back to the text, hoping you're still awake. I'll take your word for it. Verse 23, kind of surprising. When you're persecuted and what, not if, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Does that surprise anybody? Chicken out? No, I'm staying. Let them beat me up again every day. They can, hello? Be wise, shrewd as serpents. You know, you hit a snake with a shovel. If you don't kill him, he'll go the other way so fast. You go, where did he go? They know. I better get out of here. There comes a time when you say, it's not prudent for me to stay here. All it is is danger for danger's sake. Why should I court persecution? Flee. Go to the next town because there's other people that may hear you. It's not a sin but uh, to move on. It's wrong to court martyrdom. It's wrong to run toward persecution, like some sort of spiritual masochist. Don't do it, he says. If you have a chance for an honorable escape without compromising the word of God, not wimping out, okay, I don't believe in Jesus, leave me alone. That's wrong. But it's okay to flee and go to the next town, to the next city. Okay, keep. Uh, I'm still reading in verse 23. I alluded to it a minute ago. Uh, if you're persecuted in one place, next, flee to another. Here it comes. Truly, I tell you, Jesus' way of saying, listen up, this is really important. You will not finish going through the cities or the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Huh? Okay, there are dozens of opinions on this verse. At face value, it sounds like saying, you won't finish going through every single city and town on the map and village before the Son of Man comes. Question number one. He's talking about Israel, which is the size of New Jersey. It's a lot of territory, but it's a very small place, right? Does he mean you won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes like the second coming? Like they'll never get through the cities? That can't be it. There are scholars that think that is what it means. Or does it mean before the Son of Man is revealed? Which would be he reveals himself on Palm Sunday, some of you know. Rides purposely, go get me a donkey. I'm going to ride into town. It's in Zechariah. The Messiah will ride in on a donkey. They know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a formal, yes, I'm your guy. And they kill him less than a week later. Is it that? Is it when he's, is it when he's revealed in his resurrection? There's scholars that think that. There's scholars that think, this is the majority opinion, not necessarily right though, that it's 70 AD. When Jesus comes to Israel in judgment. You mean invisibly? Invisibly. Wait, didn't the Romans wreck Israel and Jerusalem and tear down the temple and burn the temple down and take it down one stone at a time? Yes. Didn't they kill somewhere between half a million and a million Jews? Yes. And the rest, some of them they took into slavery, and the rest they just dispersed, kicked them out of their land. Yes. 
That was their judgment. Listen, it's no coincidence that that happened. That happened 40 years roughly after they said, no thanks, we don't want you as our Messiah. It was the judgment on Israel for refusing their Messiah. It's possible they didn't go through every single city and town before that happened. Take your choice. There are those that think, no, it's the second coming, where there'll be an increased uh, evangelism of Jews, the 144,000 you've read in chapter 7. I think it's in 14 as well of Revelation. And they'll be going through the towns of Israel, and they won't even get through all of them before he shows up the second coming. Which one is it, Joe? I don't know. There's so many opinions on this verse, but the point is, keep going through the towns of Israel. You say, well, I'm not going to Israel, especially not now with the bombs falling. What does this say to me? It says, keep spreading the word. You are a missionary. You might get sent to Zaire, or you might get sent to work tomorrow, or to your neighborhood, and see your neighbor who you know doesn't go to church, and Tell them about Jesus. Tell them, come to church. Come to Tuesday night. There's a weird guy teaching Bible study. And Anyway, the point is evangelize your world, whatever it is, your family, your friends. But based on the instructions, expect a majority of people to go, no thanks. I think you're a fool for believing this. It's okay. Keep going anyway. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Uh, okay, verse 24, did we cover all this other stuff? Yeah, I think we did. Okay, verse 24. More bad news. The student, that's the disciple, that's you. Who's the teacher? Jesus. That's the 12 of them. The student is not above the teacher, that's Jesus, nor a servant, the 12 and you above his master. That's Jesus. They're not, that's a standard thing people would say in that day. It's common knowledge. Servant's not above the master, he's below. Okay, what's your point, Jesus? Verse 25. It is enough for students to be like their teachers. Who are you following? I'm following Jesus. I want to learn as much as I can in my life, however many more months or years or weeks or days or hours I have about Jesus. And I want to be like him. Christ likeness is all through the book of Romans and all through the New Testament. That's what we're supposed to be. Conform to his image. That's the goal. Will I ever make it? No. In heaven, yes. On this earth, no. I'm still fleshly Joe, sinful Joe. So are you, sinful, insert your name here. But we want to be as much like Jesus as possible, don't we? Loving, caring, sharing the truth. But his point is, they persecuted me. They're going to come after you because you're like me, and they don't like that. Watch. The student's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Verse 25, it's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house, Jesus, has been called Beelzebul, that's the chief of the demons, it's a Canaanite, Canaanite deity name. In various translations, it's Beelzebul with an L at the end and Beelzebub with a B. Same word, just two different ways to translate it. How much more the members of his household? If they come after me, they're going to come after you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 
I don't think anybody in the sound within the sound of my voice on Zoom or here has been persecuted that much. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm telling you, it could happen in America. A hundred, hundred and seventy. I'm bad at math. Hundred eighteen years ago, I think it was nineteen o five. Rush Limbaugh brought this out. He read a 1905 test of eighth grade students in America. And it was a bunch of questions from the Bible in public school. Hmm, you don't see that now. Jesus, God, Bible, Christianity, salvation, those are four letter words in our society. It's slowly been changing, right? Don't be surprised if it gets much more serious because as Christians, you people and me people, we believe the Bible. Oh, you think homosexuality is a sin? Do you? You judgmental jerk. I didn't write the Bible, but yes, that's what it says. God wrote the Bible, right? You think murder is wrong? Well, come on, everybody thinks murder is wrong. Well, no, not if it's a child and the woman's pregnant. She doesn't really want the child. It's not really murder. Do you see what I mean? We're starting to be persona non grata in America because we believe things that they consider, wait for it, hate speech. Wait, Jesus just said they would hate us. This is why. They're going to turn what we believe as godly Christian doctrine into hate speech, which, if you're not careful, will make you shut up and not say it very much or be careful who's listening when you say it. And the weird thing is, any illusion of privacy you think you have, you're crazy because they are listening right here. They're listening. There's been, this not in my notes, if you have the F Facebook app or you have Google or a Chrome device, an a, 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 um, Android device, it works on Apple too. You can talk about, let's say you don't own cats, you don't like cats, I don't want a cat, I never want a cat. I hate cats. You can talk about cats and kittens. And you know what you'll see in the ads? Kitty litter, cat toys, cat food ads, because they're listening. How long will it be before you're persona non grata for believing you're in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it's hate speech, you prejudiced people, you. Okay, it's getting pretty quiet in here. I'm going to move on now. He who endures to the end will be saved. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, Beelzebul or Beelzebub, Hebrew Baal Zabul, Prince Baal, 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 was a uh, Canaanite deity that was not really a god, small g, but they worshipped him, an idol, okay? Okay. Um, 
In Paul's writings, he says that behind every idol is a demon receiving that worship. The Jews had to be careful, don't get into the Baal worship that's all around you. You look on a map, by the way, Israel's surrounded by enemies. It's an amazing thing they're still there to me. Totally an evidence for the existence of God the Father. Okay. If the head of the house, Jesus, has been called the devil, Beelzebul, how much more the members of his house? So they might call you that as well. Here's how to avoid that persecution. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. Just keep your mouth shut about this Jesus guy and you'll be just fine. Take that sticker off your car. Don't be talking to people about Jesus. Sorry, that's not biblical advice, is it? Okay. Which leads right into verse 26. So... Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. For there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. What's he saying here? Okay. He's saying, don't be afraid of them because in the end, it's all going to come out. What do you mean? Everything. No one gets away with anything. No, no, they do. OJ and listen, in the end, no one gets away with anything. Because we're dealing with a judge that not only sees and knows everything and hears everything, we're dealing with a judge in heaven that is omniscient. He knows already, right? And his judgment, unlike the courts in any nation in the world, his judgment's 100% right, 100% of the time. It's also 100% fair. Even if it's, they're going to say it isn't fair, it's fair. So he's letting them know there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark whispered into your ear, preach it from the rooftops because it's going to go global, right? On YouTube or in other video platforms on the internet, there's a saying, oh yeah, that video went viral. You ever heard that? Christianity, he's saying to them, it's going to go viral. You'll see in a good way. It's going to spread to places you won't believe. And it's true. And the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come, Jesus says, Matthew 24. Don't be afraid of them. He's going to give you another reason to not be afraid. That's going to surprise you in a second. But for now, his point is, it's all going to come out. And um, confidence that the truth will prevail. And in the end, every single human being will know two things they'll know Jesus really was the son of God and Christianity is, was totally true all along. And the Christians were right and the Bible's right and they, unbelievers, were wrong. And so were the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Confucianists and the New Agers and the atheists and the fill in the blank, Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christian science, they were all, they'll all know the truth. It's all gonna come out. 
We're not used to this in society because there's all kinds of injustice in the courts. There's somebody in this room right now that's got a trial hanging over her head, and now it's been delayed a full year, poor thing. And you never know with the courts. The truth might come out and it might not. But in the end, in God's judgment, it'll all come out. They'll all know. Do you know that the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, every, meaning what? Unbelievers and gurus uh, from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to whoever you want, they're all going to admit it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, it was all true. But there'll be two categories. You and I will have already had worn out knees from praying and bowing to him and tongues that have been confessing it forever. It'll be no big deal to us. We'll say it again. Jesus is Lord. Praise God. But some of them will do it with tears reluctantly. Oh, no. I bet everything this was not true. And I was wrong. It's the biggest bet people will make in a lifetime, is it not? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. If you're bummed out, say amen. Okay, good. <laughs> Just testing you. Um, okay. Uh, Beelzebul is also translated Lord of the Flies. You ever read that book? That's a whole other story. We won't go into that now, but it, it's a personification in Israel of, in Jew, among Jews for all that is demonic and evil. If they call him that, they're going to call you that. Uh, also, you will be exonerated. They will know. That guy I told was, Tom came to my house to talk to me about Jesus, and I told him, what an idiot you are for believing that. They'll know he was representing God as an ambassador, he or she, whoever said it. Uh, God will judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4. That should give us great confidence. It's sort of like saying a baseball game is nine innings. And maybe this is only the fifth inning of your life, or maybe it's the seventh or eighth or even the ninth inning of human society being on planet Earth, whatever. And if the score looks like 22 to 1, your team is losing. Most people don't believe in Jesus, you know. Yeah, I know. He's saying here, by the time the game ends, it'll be 175 to 22. They lose big time. They lose eternally. You win eternally. That's what he's saying. Keep the faith. Don't be afraid of them. And verse 27 spe uh, speaks about, speaks against Gnosticism. You say, what's that? The Gnostics were later in the first century and in the second century, a sect of so-called Christians who believed we smart, educated, rich Christians, we have the real truth that the others don't get to hear. Secret knowledge. Uh, the Gnostics believed that for the peasants, for most of you people, you can get that, the gospel, you know, whatever. We know the truth, some secret truth that not everybody is privy to. He's saying wrong. What I'm whispering to you, there's no hidden knowledge in Christianity. It's all here in the word. It's all in the gospel message. 
It's beautiful. Whether you're rich, poor, smart, dumb, even Italians can receive Jesus. Okay. It's a little harder for us, but we can. Um, don't be afraid of them. What I tell you in the dark, proclaim it from the rooftops. Some have seen that as an evidence too. This is an outdated thing now. Antennas on the roofs, right? Where you get the gospel via television, radio. Now it's satellite dishes or the internet. Anyway, not sure why I threw that in. Okay, here it comes. You want more bad news? Verse 28. It's not really bad news. Do not be afraid of those who kill, who what? Kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid or fear the one who can destroy both body and soul, or soul and body, in hell. I can't sugarcoat this verse. Don't miss what it says. Do you know what it says? Some of you, they might kill you because you're a Christian. The people he's talking to, Judas kills himself. The other 11 all die that way. Martyrs' deaths. He's saying, don't even be afraid of that. What we've covered so far is stuff to be afraid of. Ridicule, persecution, getting whipped, getting arrested, getting jailed maybe, right? We naturally fear those things as humans, physical harm. But let's face it, the big daddy of them all, at least they didn't kill you. Oh no, they might. Okay, he's saying the astounding thing, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of it because that's the worst they can do. And in Christianity, because you have eternal life, that's nothing. In Christianity, we live forever. He who believes, that's you, has already present tense eternal life. Therefore, if you live to be 95 years old, that's a long life, Joe. That's a spit in the ocean compared to eternity. It's like two seconds in the third grade on September 19th. You remember that? No, you don't. What happened those two I don't know. That's how short life on earth is going to seem when we've been in heaven nine billion years. That's how short it's going to be. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body because that's the worst they can do. They can't kill the soul. They can't take away your eternal life. Okay. Body, soul. What are we talking about here? So let's throw in a third term, spirit, right? Every human being, body, physical body, soul, the immaterial part, spirit, the immaterial part. There are a few scholars that think soul and spirit are the same thing. I don't think so. They seem to be differentiated. They're both immaterial. One third of you is physical, physical body. Okay, two-thirds of you, soul, spirit, not physical, immaterial, okay? Um, soul, your soul is your personality. Think mind, um, emotions, your will, and the other part is spirit. This is harder to explain. This is the spiritual part of you that can commune with God because the other two, body, soul, can't unless the spirit is on board, okay? When, which do I want to do first? When people die, 
when a Christian dies, if I drop dead right now, some of you are hoping because it's getting late and you're tired. If I die right this second, my body will fall to the ground. The Bible teaches absent from the body. My soul and my spirit will leave my body and go to be with God in heaven and come with Jesus when he comes back to earth. A separation between the hand and the glove. Got it? The glove is the body. The real you is immaterial. Your, your soul and your spirit. The Bible, I believe, also teaches, again, there's Christians that disagree about this. I believe that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, body, soul, spirit. Notice it's a trinity in a sense. Not that they're gods, but it's a trinity. We are threes. Nature loves threes. We've done that talk before. There are Christians that don't agree with this, but I believe Adam and Eve, body, soul, spirit, would have lived eternally had they not sinned, okay? They could commune with God. They were alive body-wise. They were alive in their soul. They were alive in their spirit. Jesus, God says to them, don't eat of that tree. The day you eat of it, you will surely what, class? Die. So you read the narrative, Genesis 3. We're studying Genesis at this church. They ate. And in the day they ate of it, still alive. Are they? Body? Yes. Soul? Yes. I believe, a lot of scholars believe, most, they died spiritually. They knew they're naked. They have to cover up. Ever since then, we are dead, Ephesians 2, 1, in our trespasses and sins. Are you saying unsaved people are walking dead like the horror movie title? Yes. Spiritually, yes. They're alive in their body, alive in their soul. Why do you think Jesus calls coming to faith in Christ being what? Born again. And Nicodemus in John 3 hears that and says, what? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And he says, Jesus says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Look, you're thinking physical. I'm thinking spirit. Born again by the Spirit. Your spirit is quickened, made alive. The second you believed, you may not have felt that much different. Your spirit was alive again. You are now the completed trinity, soul, spirit, body. Okay. Now that everybody's looking at me like, like a German shepherd. We used to have a German shepherd, and my brother and I would make noises. We're, and, and he'd go, try it sometime with your dog. It's fun. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we still have time. I'm so anxious to get to this next part here. Um, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Hard to not be afraid of death, but you know where you're going, don't you? It's a graduation. It's glorious. I believe if you could interview every Christian in heaven, the second you died... Harold, we'll make it Harold, nobody here. Yes. What did you think? Did you want to come back? You know what they're going to all say? Heck no. When I saw where I was going, who I was going to be with, heck no. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one, a reverential awe of God. The one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Gehenna. What does that mean? It means the one to be afraid of is God, if you're going to be afraid of somebody.
because they can't kill you. He could, and he never will, because he's not God to you. He is, but he's dad, father. It's beautiful. Okay, what's going on here? He's, he's saying have a reverential awe for the one who can destroy both, notice, soul and body in hell. Wait, are you saying unbelievers are going to be resurrected? Yes, there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The Bible teaches it over and over and over. At, when Christ returns, everybody rises. You in glory. Your spirit, if you've already died, and your soul are in heaven, you come with Jesus, your body rises out of the grave or out of the ocean where you drowned or whatever, however you died, I don't wanna be weird here. And there's a reuniting of your soul, your spirit into your body. This body with all the, no, a glorified body that will never have pain or get sick or die or even have the ability to sin. Awesome. For unbelievers, they're raised to judgment and they go to hell, notice soul and body in hell. Destroy, not annihilation, they're, the verb tenses about hell, which is variously described as, I'm hurrying, can you tell? As weeping ongoing and gnashing ongoing of teeth, right? Where their worm does not die, there's ongoing anguish and suffering in hell. You say those poor people, I say to you, it doesn't make me happy to say anything about hell, but I will say this. Every one of those people wrote their own ticket. No thanks. Don't want Jesus, Bible, church, bunch of hypocrites there. My old pastor used to say, isn't it better to spend an hour and a half a week with a few hypocrites in church? Or do you want to spend eternity with every single hypocrite there ever was? Okay. Don't be afraid of them. Don't fear. Okay, last thing, and we barely have time to do this. We'll do it more next week. Ready? Verse 29. It's going to sound like a, what? Where is this coming from? Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do you know that in Israel, the very, 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 very poor people ate sparrows? You go, not much meat. That's why they're inexpensive, right? Got to have a bunch to make a little mini sandwich, right? So they were sold for a little copper coin. Yet he's saying here, not one of them will fall to the ground outside of God's care. Translation, deism is wrong. Thomas Jefferson, I don't know when he died, but on, for most of his life, he was a deist. Deists believe that some eternal God made the world like a watch and wound it up and then stepped away. God doesn't get involved in the everyday life of Doreen or Jesse or Chris or Joe. He doesn't care about the, that stuff. He wound the watch got the earth spinning around the sun in orbits, and, and he just left it. You know what this verse says? Eh, wrong. He is intimate, so intimately involved in the everyday affairs, he knows when sparrows die, right? 62 sparrows died in the state of California today. God went, check, 61. He knew about every one of them. He knows about how many hairs are on your head. 
He knows you better than you know yourself, loves you more than your mom or dad or anybody ever did. <laughs> Some have fewer hairs than others. Amen. Um, we'll talk more about this next week, but deism is wrong. God is intimately involved and he cares. And the last thing I want you to know, and I know we're late, is he says in this verse, you are of tremendous value to God. You know that? If God had a fridge, he'd have your picture on it. A lot of little pictures, but you're, you'd be in there somewhere. Yes. Okay. Let's close with prayer. We'll talk about this more next week and we'll get out of here because we're late. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. It's, it's a lot to take in. And we recognize that persecution goes on today for Christians and might go on for us at some point. But regardless, God, may we learn from this evening that we will never d deny you or walk away or wimp out, but we will confess that you are our Lord till the day that we die. Thanks to your spirit for giving us the words when we need them. Thanks for you protecting us. As long as you need us to work, we will be protected. When it's time for us to die, we might die, but we leave it all in your capable hands, God, knowing that it's all worth it, that all the judgment you give will reward believers and punish those who punished us in the meantime, use us for your glory and for the spreading of the gospel because the time might be getting shorter. Thank you for your word and your son, Jesus, the ultimate gift. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. And those of you on Zoom, God bless. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.